0: All right, we're gonna go ahead and get started. What's in a name? This is part two of a, a, se- a series, just to kind of prep our hearts for the Advent season. Um, you know, I was sitting in a, I was sitting in a circle of of some new acquaintances earlier this week, and uh, one of the one of the ladies there, she shared that she had named her son Carson, and she had formerly worked for um, a fire department. And she said, yeah, I named my son Carson because it rhymed with arson and things, like." (laughs) Uh, but she was totally kidding. She was kidding. She, she, uh, she let the, the everybody's jaw drop a little bit anyways. Um, but, uh, you know, she, she actually went on to explain that Carson actually means Christ follower and things like that. And so, again, just kind of got me thinking about the names that are ascribed to Jesus throughout the Christmas story. And uh, last week we looked at one of the names that just kind of slipped in there in Zechariah's song in Luke chapter 1. But today we're going to go to another one that is just kind of obscure and slipped in there in Luke chapter 2. So go ahead and take your Bibles. Uh, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 2. And we're going to look at a story. This is now, you know, last week we were in Luke 1. It was just the the birth of John the Baptist. So several months still until the birth of Jesus. This week we're looking at Luke chapter 2. And so we're kind of bypassing the whole birth story. We're bypassing the shepherds in the field. This is now eight days after Jesus has been born. And Jesus' parents are bringing him to the temple. We're in Luke chapter 2. We're going to go to verse 25. When you're there, go ahead and say, Amen. All right, you're there. Luke chapter 2, and actually, you know what, before we begin to study, let's, let's just bow our heads, pause for another word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're asking today that your Holy Spirit would guide us into not just some truth, but all truth, that we would see Jesus. We're asking God that as we open up the Bible, that we would have a trembling heart, a humble heart, a heart that wants to not just hear from you, but also live for you. And so, please, Lord, um, give us surrender, even as we approach your word. As it says in Isaiah 66, uh, your eyes are on those whose heart trembles at your word. And so we want to approach you with, with a sense of awe today. And we're asking God that, you know, whatever I've prepared to share, that your Holy Spirit would take that and translate it into whatever it is that you know our hearts need to hear. We thank you for the living word in Jesus' saving and precious name. Let the families say, amen. 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 All right, so here we are. Luke chapter 2. This is all, uh, like I said, several days after Jesus has been born. The parents of Jesus, Joseph and Mary, they take Jesus actually to the temple in Jerusalem there to dedicate him. And in verse 25, they have an encounter with someone whose name is Simeon. Luke introduces us to another Another name, and it, it surrounds the experience of a man named Simeon. The Bible says, I'm reading from the New King James, it says, Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Simeon, all right? So here's Simeon. By the way, Simeon, his name means God hears. All right? God is listening. Kind of a cool thing. But let's just kind of build a character sketch of this man because it's around his story that we see another name for the, the, the babe of Bethlehem whose name was Simeon, and this man was, now my Bible has two descriptors there. It says, this man was just and devout. What does your Bible say for the description for Simeon there? He was a a good man, okay, righteous, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this word just, as it is in the New King James, dikaios from the Greek, this is actually used several times, even in the the Advent story. It's used in Matthew chapter 1 to describe Joseph, who was a just man, okay? And it's also used in Luke chapter one about Elizabeth and Zechariah who were just. But what's interesting about this description is not it's not just that he was a good man, not just that he was a righteous man, but that he was just and New King James says and devout. It's a u- unique add-on, so to speak, to this story, which literally, the word here for devout literally means taking hold. Of what is good. So it's an action description. It's it's actually a visual description, taking hold of what is good, grasping, clinging to what is good. So as as you're trying to build this idea of what Simeon was like, who he really was, I want us to uh, just kind of solidify this that Simeon valued what God valued. Okay? Simeon was a man who revered the things that God revered. He holds it dear. He cherishes those things that God himself cherishes. So he is one who is devout. He's holding dearly to the things that God holds dear. And what's really interesting is that later on in the story, we'll find that he not just holds dearly the things of God, he actually holds literally God himself, which is a really cool uh, just picture here. And in verse 26, you get this idea that Simeon is also a, a, a mature man, a seasoned man, an aged man. In verse 26, the Bible says, we'll get back to the rest of 25, don't worry. But in verse 26, the Bible says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Okay, so Simeon has been give, given this uh, this hope in the twilight years of his life, so to speak. You get the idea. There's hints that Simeon is, is older in age. In fact, in verse 29, when he's actually holding the babe, the very first things he says in verse 29, Oh, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. He's ready to die. He's ready to die. Depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And we'll continue on in this. But I just kind of want to get a little bit of a picture of who this man is. So we know he's a man who lives in Jerusalem. We know he's hanging around the temple. He's devout. He's I'm sorry, he's just and he's also devout, holding dear to the things of God. We also know that he's relatively aged, he's seen a lot of life, but he isn't just watching the clock. You know, he's not just letting time pass. The Bible says that he's waiting and he's anticipating. Now let's go back to verse 25. Because it's there that we find this waiting sense of Simeon. And this man was just and devout, the New King James says, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. You guys know what it's like to wait? Yeah? Maybe when you're getting some Christmas packages out, and you're, you're actually relying upon the USPS, not just Amazon and things like that to do it. You're waiting in line for what seems like an eternity to get this postage. And I don't know, whatever. Maybe you're waiting for... I was at Michael's the other day and just like, man, the lime... Anyways, I'm starting to give away my shopping list. I'm sorry, guys. Anyways, uh, <laughs> but uh, but waiting is not always not always a pleasant experience. Let's just say that, okay? Waiting is not always a positive experience, especially if you're, um, you know, that child that needs discipline and you're waiting for the verdict, you know, (laughs) or you're sitting in the principal's office and you're waiting for what the word is, you know, that kind of thing. But in here, when, when the Bible uses this word waiting, you know, the Bible has other words for waiting that are more of that kind of fear and trembling sense. But this is a waiting that is eager. This is a kind of waiting that is longing, okay? The word, um, I think, do I have, I don't have it on the screen. But the word is a combination of two, two particular uh, verbal ideas here. And the idea is to welcome. The, the, the root of this word for waiting is to welcome something. Uh, to, w- to welcome it with open arms, to welcome it with warm reciprocity, to wait actively and expectantly, um, to, to wait for something with a readiness and willingness to give and receive. It's, a, it's an expectancy. Okay? In fact, what's really interesting is that in, in Titus chapter 2, maybe this f- verse is familiar to you, Titus chapter 2 verse 13 uses this same idea. And I love this. It says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so in as much as you are looking for the return of Jesus, that's the kind of waiting. Okay, that's the kind of expectancy and anticipation that we're talking about here. Simeon is waiting. He is eagerly looking for something. And what's really cool is that another use of this same word is later on in Luke chapter 15. Maybe you remember when uh, Jesus is eating with the tax collectors and sinners, and um, the, the local religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, they say, This man receiveth sinners. Right? It's in Luke chapter 15, verse 2. It's the very same word for waiting and looking for. Receiveth sinners. This man, Jesus, he's waiting for sinners. I love that because just as much as you intensely look for the second coming of Jesus, Jesus is looking for someone to turn to him. Jesus is <coughs> excuse me, looking for someone to come to him. He's looking for someone to embrace who needs the loving, forgiving grace of Jesus. Oh, I love that. Okay, so this is Jesus, and this is the kind of waiting that Simeon, has in mind, he's he's got this this eagerness to welcome and receive something very very specific. So what occupies Simeon in his old age? It's not just uh, Sudoku or whatever it is. He's he, what he he is waiting for something. Specifically, the Bible says in Luke chapter two, verse twenty-five, waiting for the what? What does your Bible say? Yeah, the consolation of israel and this is awesome to me you know this is something that you know i'll get to the, the name in just a moment but this is something so beautiful to me that simeon is waiting for this this resolution this turnaround of events but not just uh, circumstances he's not just waiting for new circumstances he's waiting for a new presence he's waiting for a new person he's waiting for a king and apparently there are other people in the town that are doing the same. Uh, there's another uh, elderly woman uh, down in verse 36. Her name is Anna and she's a prophetess. The Bible says she's of great age, but uh, she sees the baby Jesus. And in verse 38, it says, coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him, spoke of this baby to all those who looked for the redemption of Israel. In other words, it's that same word, who we are waiting for the redemption of Israel. In other words, Anna is looking for uh, this, this very same thing that Simeon is looking for, and she's telling all the people that she can about the fact that Jesus is finally here. The, the thing that troubles me is that the subtle implication is that not everybody was looking. The subtle implication is that Anna had to look for people who were looking. I mean, it's like the, the, the fact that the angels, um, they were flying over Jerusalem. They were flying over, you know, the, the people of God. And they were looking for someone to announce this news to that would actually want to hear it. They didn't find the priests looking for it. They didn't find the religious leaders looking for it. They found shepherds, right? Not everybody was looking for it. In fact, in Luke chapter 23, verse 51, do we have this here? Joseph of Arimathea was one of the few, the Bible says, You know, it kind of gives this hint that he was one of the few. This is what separated Joseph of Arimathea apart. So Joseph had not consented to their decision and deed, the deed of crucifying Jesus. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So not everybody was waiting. Not everybody was eager about this. And the question that I want to ask before moving on to the very name, the very one that that, uh, Simeon was waiting for, the question I want to ask today is, are we? Are we looking, are we looking for with eagerness? Are we looking for the advent, the return of Jesus? Are we eagerly awaiting the arrival of not just the kingdom, but of the king? Are we among those who, unlike the general population, are actually looking for the advent of Jesus with with not fear and trembling, but with confident expectancy? I want to be that. You know, I want to be Adventist, not just in name, but in heart. You know, looking for, longing for the return of Jesus. And so here's Simeon, back to this first Advent. This is what he is waiting for. This man was just and devout, waiting for, and we already said it, Luke identifies specifically what Simeon was expecting and waiting for. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. I want to break this down just a little bit here because this is the name. What's in a name? This. Okay, this is the name. consolation of Israel. And this word, consolation, actually comes from uh, a compound word. It's a paraklesis. Paraklesis. And, and it really means, uh, klesis comes from the verb kaleo, which means to call. And para means uh, alongside or next to. Okay, something that's Parallel. Okay, next to. So it it involves a sense of proximity. It's a calling or a speaking to that is close at hand. You might call it a close call okay? Uh, It's a close or intimate urging. It's done by someone who is close beside and very involved in a circumstance or relationship. So it's a combination of two sentiments, calling, yes, that that sound of it, but also closeness, okay? It's a combination of speaking to as well as standing beside. So we're looking at paraklesis, and uh, you get the other cognates or other forms of this word, parakletos. It's the word that's used for advocate, or counselor. It's used in reference to uh, the description of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, as well as Jesus himself in 1st John chapter 2, that we ourselves have an advocate with the Father, okay? So this is, this. it takes on legal overtones, this idea of standing up for someone. And so when Simeon is looking for a consolation, He's looking for not just a change of circumstance or not just encouragement about things and, uh, you know, kind of looking on the bright side. He's looking for someone who will truly stand beside and call us, who will truly embody what it is to encourage. The most frequent use of this New Testament word is translated as the word comfort. Comfort. You know, someone who's close beside you, who's going to tell you something in your ear, is not always going to speak comfort. Sometimes that person will whisper to you, some, hey, you got food in your teeth. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, some, some correction, some exhortation, some warning even. And sometimes this, this, this idea of paraclesis is used in that way. So depending on the context and stuff, but really most often it's translated as comfort the arm around the shoulder next to, head, forehead to forehead whispering to you some comfort this is really interesting to me and here in the New King James, the, the New King James capitalizes consolation. It's not just any sort of consolation, but the consolation, meaning it's a person. It's a figure of speech that takes the attribute of the anticipated Messiah, turns it into a title for the Messiah. In fact, the, the, there were, it was common for Jewish rabbis of the day to speak of the coming Messiah as the consoler or the comforter. And Luke uses this familiar verbiage to portray Simeon's encounter with Jesus the long-awaited consolation of Israel. Question today, do you know Jesus as your consolation? I think the Apostle Paul, you were reading earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you know, Paul was someone who knew a lot of discomfort, right? And in fact, it's in his writings that this word paraklesis is used most often as comfort. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Actually, I, I don't have it there, man. Second Corinthians chapter, let's turn there. Can you just keep a bookmark here in Luke chapter 2? Go to 2 Corinthians. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 1. This is beautiful. A beautiful description of God. And I wonder if we know the same. Because Paul knew Jesus. Paul knew Jesus as his comfort. Second Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 3. When you're there, say, I found it. Second Corinthians 1: verse3, the Bible says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort." I know that sounds kind of simple and elementary even, but would you allow your heart just to slow down and read that again? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and God of all comfort. Do you know Jesus as your consolation and comfort? I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the comfort that others try to give in your times of need is only as effective or it's proportionately effective to their experience of the same thing have you noticed that i mean it's been about a year and a half since jacob's um, burn accident and stuff someone reminded me about that a few days ago and i was just like wow it's been that long and i remember i mean i wasn't there personally debbie shared this with me that as she was riding with jacob in the ambulance that one of the first responders said, you know what, my brother experienced, I don't remember exactly the extent of his burns, but my brother, when he was little, experienced the same thing. And you don't see it anymore. You know, that was something that she needed to hear right then. She didn't need to hear that, you know what, my, my child had a bloody nose once and it stopped in a second. <laughs> no! That's not, you know, the comfort we give to others, you know, It's proportionate to the experience of the same thing. You know, I I remember, you know, at Craig Hospital, this is what I love about Craig Hospital, you know, specializes in spinal cord injuries and things like that. When you go there, there are volunteers, there are therapists who are whipping around in wheelchairs because they've been there, right? And you see that and you're like, oh man, these guys know it, you know? I mean, you, you go through life and things are fine and dandy and you feel like, like part of the human race, but then when, when suffering comes upon you and you feel absolutely lonely, someone tries to sympathize with you, but they've never experienced that and you just kind of shut down a little bit, you know? But when you encounter someone who's been through it, you, you're able to pour out your heart. You're able to hear what they have to say. You're comforted when they comfort you. And the Christmas story, the fact that it calls Jesus the consolation of Israel, the Christmas story, the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, assures us that Paul, when he says that he's the God of all comfort, Paul is not exaggerating when he says this. God has the capacity to give you all the comfort that you need. Why? Because he's been through all that you've been through. In Hebrews chapter 2, I love this, this picture of Jesus as our high priest. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, so here's the assurance. Jesus is our high priest. He's able to help those who are tempted. But why is it? It's because he himself has suffered when tempted. It's because in every respect he understands. It's because he's been there. It's because he's done that. He has an infinite capacity to comfort us because he has the infinite capacity to understand us. This is Jesus. This is the consolation of Israel of your heart, and of my heart. And that's what the Christmas story is. He's been there. He's done that. And he's come out on the other side as victor, provider, life giver, hope resuscitator, and reviver. This is Jesus. And Luke, as he's talking about this man, Simeon, this man who who all his life has been assured that God hears because that's his name, Right? who all his life has been waiting. He's not just waiting for something. He's not just waiting for a turn of events. He's waiting for the comforter, the consolation of Israel. And it's in this light that Simeon now sees the babe and seizes the babe, takes him from his parents' arms. Let's go back to Luke chapter 2, because it's in this light of now seeing the consolation That Simeon gives us, in just a few short sentences, a really deep theology of salvation. Okay? So let's check it out. In uh, Luke chapter 2, we're back there. Luke chapter 2. In verse 28, the Bible says, He took him up in his arms. And blessed God. Now, uh, we read it earlier in verse 25. The Holy Spirit was actually upon Simeon in this moment. So just like Zechariah, when we were reading about Zechariah yesterday, is not just some emotional, mushy-gushy talk. No, this is prophetic insight. The Holy Spirit is speaking through Simeon right now. And in verse 29, we start hearing this theology of salvation. It says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your what salvation my eyes have seen your salvation question what exactly did simeon lay eyes on that day a baby a baby baby. my eyes have seen a baby (laughs) but he says my eyes have seen your salvation why because this was a baby whose very presence means that the story of of humanity can be rewritten. Even before that baby was able to walk, let alone talk, or perform miracles, or preach any sermons, this baby is salvation. (laughs) Why? Because salvation is not a forensic or theological concept. Salvation is a person. And his name is Jesus. Salvation isn't a concept, it's a person. Salvation isn't merely an accomplishment or an experience, although those things are true of it. Salvation is God himself. God's very presence. So Simeon says, My eyes have seen your salvation. Point number one of his theology of salvation. Salvation is a person. Okay, It's a person. What else? Salvation is prepared. He goes on, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared prepared. I love this. Which you have prepared. When you're preparing something, there's a lot of thought that goes into it, right? When you're preparing Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner or even Christmas gifts or what, whatever it is that you may be preparing, there's just so much. I mean, even if it's, if it's a, man. So I have in my Bible this little, uh, this bookmark. I'm going to embarrass Jenna. I don't know exactly know how old she was when she made this. But it says, form Jenna, okay? Which means from Jenna. (laughs) Form Jenna to daddy. And there's a stick figure with a D above it. That's daddy. And a shorter stick figure with a G above it. And that's Jenna. There's four (laughs) little flowers there and a butterfly. Anyways, I don't know when she gave it to me, but I know I kept it. Because it was prepared. When you prepare something, there's thought that goes into it. There's heart that goes into it. There's love that goes into it. Salvation is prepared, divinely prepared, divinely ordained, a fulfillment of advance arrangements by the loving heart of God. God's salvation is not last minute. It wasn't a plan B oops. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a haphazard, spontaneous, reactionary idea. Revelation 13 says that Jesus is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Even before there was a need for that, he was ready for that. Simeon is someone who doubtless has the Old Testament messianic prophecies in view. Maybe he even has the time prophecies of Daniel chapter 9 memorized. I don't know. But he knows that it's time. He knows that what he's waiting for is a... Yeah, come, it's time. Okay. He knows this. That's why he's been waiting with eagerness not with exasperation. Sometimes we wait and it's like, come on already, you know? Mm-hmm. No, no, but the Simeon's different. He's waiting because he knows that God is prepared. That He's not just kinda you know, sitting on his hands or wondering if it's the right time. No, God is prepared. Salvation is prepared, and I think that's the value of knowing prophecy, friends. I don't know if you're, uh, if you've ever gotten tired of studying prophecy. I'm so glad that next quarter we're getting into Daniel um, in, in the adult Sabbath School study guide and things like that. But there's value of prophetic hope because it gives us a view of God preparing, being super intentional. That when we're seeing things happen, we don't have to wonder, does God really know what he's up to? What does John 14 say? I told you these things in advance so that when they happen, you may believe. Right? The view of prophecy, having the prophetic word in mind, a prophetic hope, gives us a view of God who is preparing. So then we can wait with confidence and not complaining. So then we can wait and trust that God is not slack concerning his promise. Salvation is a person, and salvation is prepared. But what else? uh, Simeon has some deep stuff for us in just a few phrases. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. I love that. So salvation is for all peoples. The, the rest of verse 32, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. Okay, so now he's getting specific about what all peoples. It's not just you guys, right? Not for, for a Jewish audience that may be hearing this, no, salvation is not just for this particular group. I don't know. This is beautiful to me because no one is left out of this gift. If you've ever had... Um, this is a dynamic that, that maybe you've seen but when you've given one gift to one child, and it's just such a cool gift that the other children just feel, how come I didn't... Well, I don't... You know, so unfair! You know, that kind of phrase. Anyways, there's a tendency to assume that a gift given to one means no gift to another. There's that, it's a subtle tendency. Maybe you see that in different uh, circumstances or, or arenas of life. But here... There are no limits. No one is left out. This gift, this consolation, yes, it's the consolation of Israel, but it's a light of of a revelation to all peoples, to the Gentiles. Which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now, Simeon's not done talking. There's one more aspect of salvation here that I think Simeon really starts kind of honing in on. (coughs) In verse 33, it says Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them, said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. And in verse 35, yes, a sword Will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And if there's a fourth dynamic of of, uh, Simeon's quick theology of salvation, is not only is it personal, not only is it prepared, not only is it for all people, but salvation is also piercing. Salvation is piercing piercing, like it penetrates in ways that nothing else can or ever will. And I want us just to kind of sit on this for a little bit, because it, I'm still chewing on it. The salvation and consolation that God brings, you know, in, in verse 32, he says it's a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. And I think there's something piercing about this revelation, because it's not just a revelation of who God is, it is also a revelation of who we are. Or maybe we should say who we're not. The presence of Jesus, according to what Simeon talks to Mary and Joseph about, the, the presence of Jesus reveals to us who we are, what our hearts are truly made of, and what they're not made of. It says, "...a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." When received aright, salvation, this revelation, you know, this revelation of our thoughts and stuff, this revelation actually results in a falling and rising of many. Did you hear that? Falling and rising. I like the sequence of that. It's not a rising, then falling. It's a falling, then rising. It's a falling of our own pride and a rising of hope, not in ourselves, but in the one who is our consolation. When received a right, this revelation results in a falling of our own pride and self-glory and a rising of hope and faith, not in ourselves, but in Him alone. And I think at times we neglect this dynamic of salvation. And I don't know if this has ever been your experience, where you receive salvation as a gift, uh, something to accept and consume without taking into account the cost. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. The cost simply being that in order to receive, I must let go. Yeah? In order to have the rising, there must first be a falling. If Jesus wants to give us salvation, there's also a a destruction, a laying to dust of self. And this, I think, is something that can pierce us. I think in uh, Acts chapter two, as the the attendees of the uh, the Feast of Pentecost were hearing Peter preach this powerful sermon, the Bible says they were pricked in the heart, right? They were pricked in the heart, and Peter called, Hey, repent and be baptized, Turn around, come home, let self be laid to the dust, And so salvation is personal, it is prepared. It is for all peoples, but it's also piercing. And let's not forget that. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to actually cause things to fall (coughs) so that things can be rebuilt. And so as we're wrapping up here, we may be eagerly waiting, you know, like Simeon. We may be eagerly waiting for gifts with bows and ribbons, but let's be most eager to wait for the consolation of Israel. (laughs) He has come as a babe. He's coming again as a king and he's coming to your heart door even now just to knock to bring us salvation. And So will you, will we not just receive pardon but will we receive the person? Yeah. Will we receive his salvation that has been prepared since eternity past not just for all people but also even including me? And will we receive his salvation with a willingness to let pride fall to the dust so that new life can rise in him? Will you receive the consolation of Israel today? Yeah? I, You know, this is something that I hope in the hustle and bustle, in the waiting for, I don't know, if you were counting down... Maybe you count down for New Year's Eve. I I grew up counting down for, you know, at the end of Christmas Eve. It's Christmas, you know, whatever. But let's wait, not just for the gifts. Let's wait for the giver. Let's wait for the giver of consolation today. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, this is my desire. This is our desire. We want to know you as the God of all comfort. Thank you for this assurance today. That of any of our experiences, no matter how dark or deep You know it, and because of that, you have an infinite capacity to comfort us through it. Uh, This season, Lord, I I know that may be difficult for some of us for various reasons. Thank you, Jesus, for reminding me this morning in my quiet time that you were the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I mean, you've been there. You've done that. And Jesus, we're just leaning on you this Christmas season. We're wanting to receive the consolation of Israel. Um, thank you so much for knowing how to provide that for each individual heart, for each home and its struggles. And Lord, I pray because we've received your comfort, you would also make us givers of your comfort. Lord, this, even this day, this week, Lord, lead us to people that we can extend the divine comfort to because you have given it to us. Thank you, Lord. You know, the the experiences that we're going through, the trials that we're walking through are not in vain. Lord, if you can lead us to experience the consolation of Israel in these shoes, Lord, then, then use us to bless others who are walking in the same. Thank you for what you're up to. Thank you for speaking to each of us today. We pray in Jesus' saving and precious name, let everyone say, Amen.